Welcome to Quest, where we believe a great faith, great church experience, and great life is grounded in authentic relationship with God and living life with friends. Join us today in changing our world one friendship at a time. If you would like more information about connecting at Quest, stay tuned after the message. So as we jump into the message today, uh, have you ever felt stuck in your faith or your life? I think we all hit a wall in our lives from time to time. And often, if you're like me, I've tried to just push through those walls with sheer willpower, just stick to it. However, the details that I'm not going to go into all the details of the image you're going to see on your screen right now, but it really highlights a truth that I think we all know. We can go along in life experiencing achievement, feeling like we've arrived, but it doesn't last. We all struggle with hitting these walls of feeling stagnant and trying to figure out how to move past this place that we keep hitting in life. And honestly, the only way to move past the walls in our lives is to choose reflection, taking time for personal awareness. Now, I get it. Reflection, introspection, it's not one of my favorite pastimes. Just ask Wendy. We struggled together, her and I, deciding whether we even should share on the practice we're going to talk about today. But we decided it is just too integral of an issue to not discuss. As we finish up the series we've been in this week and next on spiritual transformation, trying to give us tools that we can stick in our tool belt for our spiritual practices and seeking God to allow Him to deeply form our lives, uh, we just felt it was too critical to do this. This last week, Wendy was uh, researching a topic called epigenetics. I don't know if you've heard about it. It's about seeing how our environment on our experiences can actually change the original structure of our genetic makeup. Meaning, you are just not a byproduct of, your, of the genes of your mom and dad or your grandpa and grandma. Your DNA can actually be shaped by the environment and your experiences. There's a leading researcher in the field called Dr. Rachel Yehuda and her colleagues who have long studied trauma survivors and their offspring and how the effects of stress and trauma can transmit biologically. They've actually discovered that the descendants of those who survived the Holocaust concentration camps have different hormone levels in a statistically significant way than their Jewish peers whose parents and grandparents did not experience the Holocaust. These descendants of trauma had lower levels in particular of cortisol, which led to them being more susceptible to anxiety disorders, experiencing symptoms of PTSD, as well as a depressed immune system. Yehuda also has done studies of, 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 of babies born from pregnant mothers who were evacuated from the World Trade Center on 9-11. And in those studies, they have also confirmed the lower levels of cortisol in those babies of the mothers who went through that experience as compared to babies from mothers who didn't go through a similar trauma. The implication of this is a trauma of one parent's experience is literally passed down in the genetic code to the next generation. Meaning we see in our biology when something is not processed, it's not dealt with, it does not die, it lives on in us in ways that we are often unaware of. Now that doesn't sound like very good news, does it? It could feel hopeless. I mean... Why bother? It's in our genes. But it's not hopeless at all. 
What we want to do is to be aware of the cards we've been dealt in life. To see how we may have been shaped by our past. Things that may have happened even maybe even before we were born. There's many versions of this, of this phrase, but Spanish philosopher George Santayana is credited with saying, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. So how is your past, your family, your culture, your socioeconomic upbringing, key events you experience such as death, divorce, difficult things, pain, abuse, whatever, how have those things shaped you? What we know is the single greatest influencer in all of our lives is your family. And not just your mom and your dad and your siblings, but your extended family, even three to four generations back. Pete Scazzaro is a pastor and author of Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. He talks about this need to understand our families as the primary force that has shaped us by saying it this way. He says, Jesus might live in your heart, but grandpa lives in your bones. And maybe your weird uncle and aunt do too. Until we see the ways we've been shaped by the past, odds are that we will continue similar patterns for good and for bad. This is why dealing with our past is so integral to our spiritual transformation. Are, you, are, you, are the coping strategies we learned in line with the ways Jesus has designed us to live and wants us to live in health? We cannot be spiritually healthy if we are not emotionally healthy. Now, I know there are a number of ex uh, several uh, objections to exploring our family's past. One I hear from on a regular basis is, I'm, not a, I'm a follower of Jesus. I'm saved. My past is the past. I just need to move on. And I get that. I grew up with that mindset. The past is the past. Let's just move forward. And a lot of times people who hold this view will quote Paul when Paul says, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead. Now this is a really good, powerful spiritual practice that Paul and perspective that Paul is giving us. But Paul, when he talks about forgetting, the context is about him forgetting his wealth, his prestige, his privilege he gave up when he became a follower of Jesus. See, Paul was on the fast track to being wealthy, a top political and spiritual leader in Israel. And when he chose to follow Jesus, Paul chose to not have a family, to live on the road for moving from city to city, to be beaten up on a regular basis, to be in prison for several years of his life, and experience rejection from his own friends who were in Jewish leadership. That's what he is forgetting. See, Paul is not saying, what he's not saying is, I'm not going to deal with the loss and pain I have from years ago. He's not saying that your past doesn't affect you. He's not saying if your dad was absent from your life, forget it, move past it, what's done is done. See, the truth is, even if we try, we can't forget our past and we can't keep it from affecting our future. It keeps popping up and won't go away. So a better option for us is to just deal with it, right? And, and, and process it and move, move forward in a healthy way. The second objection to reflecting on the past is, I don't think I need to. My family was awesome. I don't have a lot of issues or anything from my family. And honestly, that's wonderful. So many people have had that experience. However, the truth is no matter how great your family is, 
Every family has some dysfunction. I've said this before many times. We've told our kids we know we've made mistakes, so we have a counseling fund to pay for their therapy when they get older. Now that's now that our kids are launching as, as adults, I, I see even more of the things that we did well and the mistakes we made. And for those mistakes... I regularly have the conversation with our kids. I want you to take the time to reflect and see our mistakes and how they affected you and not pass those on to your children because you heal from them instead. Part of honoring parents means we acknowledge the weight. We acknowledge the influence they've had on our lives. It's, and that can never be about turning a blind eye to the mistakes We can honor them by identifying the mistakes and standing on their shoulders and going further than them. But not ignoring them is never honoring. Part of reflecting in your family is to honor them by identifying all the good things in your family line and not just the bad. No matter how bad your family is, there are some good things you can identify. Reflecting on the good actually keeps the good moving forward in our lives. There's a final objection that that, that comes up, and I I really get this. Some people just say, I'm not ready to open that can of worms. It's just too painful. It's too much. You don't feel up to it. And honestly, that's okay. God never requires us to open up everything all at once and change everything all at once because that's overwhelming. It's impossible. So if you're there where that's the objection, you can't go there right now, just just sit back, relax, listen. And just be thoughtful that your past is not just going to go away. So someday when you find yourself stuck just managing symptoms by distracting yourself with Netflix and food or whatever it is, maybe, maybe at some point, at some point you need to be ready to take that journey. We're not going to ever put guilt on you to do that now or faster than you want. But at some point, you need to take that journey. Let's move on today by laying the biblical theology of generational sin. And we're going to start in Genesis 12, where it says, The Lord had said to Abraham, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you, and I will make your name great. And you will be a blessing. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. I mean, this is an interesting story of how blessing falls on Abraham and then on his son Isaac and on his grandson Jacob and the blessing is passed on for thousands of years. And the reality is we today are recipients of this blessing of Abraham. But the Bible also lays out the negative legacies of Abraham's family. It doesn't cover it up. It's just right there in your face for everybody to see. Abraham marries Sarah And he lies about her a couple times. As they were headed to Egypt, Abraham said to his wife, Sarah, I know what a beautiful woman you are. And he's not being sweet at this moment. He's being driven by fear. The text goes on and says, when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is my wife and they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister so that I will be treated well for your sake and my life will be spared because of you. Now that's how to love your wife more than yourself, right? So Sarah really is beautiful. Pharaoh takes her into his household and is preparing her to become his wife, showering Abraham with lots of gifts. 
And God brings judgment on Pharaoh's household. And Pharaoh and all of his wise officials discern that Sarah is really Abraham's wife. And he's furious. And he kicks Abraham and Sarah out of Egypt. Abraham, the father of our faith, tells Sarah to lie about their marriage in order to save himself. And he's a really slow learner. A few years later, Abraham does it again in Genesis 20. This time, Abe passes Sarah off as though she were his sister with King Abimelech, king of a place called Gerar. God came to Abimelech in a dream and affirming, affirmed him in this dream that, yeah, he knew Abimelech was doing all this innocently, but making no bones about the fact that he, if he was to proceed further, he was going to sin and he was going to be judged for his sin. And Abraham had this ingrained tendency to sin. Insecurity consistently caused him to lie. And we see this passed down from father to son. Abraham had two sons from different mothers, which is a whole other story. His son Isaac marries Rebekah, and years later, Isaac goes back to Gerar. It says, when the men of the place asked him about his wife, he said, she is my sister, because he was afraid to say she's my wife. He thought the men of this place might kill me on account of Rebekah because she's beautiful. Deja vu, the same city, the same king. Isaac thinks my dad had a great idea. He was afraid and so he lied and it turned out okay for him. So that's the way I'll cope with this. When Isaac had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked down from a window and saw Isaac caressing his wife, Rebekah. So Abimelech summoned Isaac and said, she is really your wife. Why did you say she is my sister? And Isaac answered, because I thought I might lose my life on account of her. What happens next? It's passed down from father to son to grandson. Genesis 27. We have Isaac's two sons, Esau and Jacob, who don't get along because there's favoritism, the other sin of Abraham in his whole line that we haven't talked about yet. He and Jacob went to his father and said, my father, and yes, my son, he answered, who is it? So Isaac at this point is blind and mostly deaf and much older. Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn, and I have done as you told me. Please sit up and eat some of the game so that you may give me your blessing. This is his first lie. He's passing himself off as Esau. Isaac asked his son, how did you find the game so quickly? Well, see, he had sent his other son out on a hunting trip, and he went, man, you must have hunted fast and gutted that thing and got it back fast. But no, it was Jacob. The Lord God, and, and Jacob goes on and says, the Lord your God gave me success. So Jacob spiritualizes his lie. Don't forget Jacob's name means deceiver. Then Isaac said to Jacob, come near so I can touch you, my son, to know whether you are really my son Esau or not. And Jacob went close to his father Isaac, who touched him and said, the voice is the voice of Jacob, but the hands are the hands of Esau, because he put sheepskin on his hands. He did not recognize him, for his hands were hairy like those of his brother Esau, so he proceeded to bless him. Are you really my son Esau, he asked. I am, he replied. Plenty of opportunities for the guy to come clean. And he lies and he lies and he lies. Jacob ended up tricking his dad into signing over Esau's inheritance. As the family line continues, we see the generational sin get worse in Jacob's children. Jacob has 12 sons and one daughter from two wives and two concubines. What a mess, all in the same household. He has a favorite son, Joseph, from whom he makes this ornate robe. And the other sons were jealous and hated Joseph. 
So while Joseph, his brothers were in the fields, they see the younger Joseph coming on this mission to inspect their work and report back to good old dad. And they say, here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of the cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him and then they'll see what comes of his dreams. Now, as you know the story, they didn't kill him. They sold him into slavery to cover up what they did. They took his robe and they dipped it in the blood of a goat and then they took it back to dear old dad and said, ah, your son has died. He got killed by wild animals, such nice sons. A fourth generation of deception to cover insecurity. This is a pattern. Abraham lies about his wife, Isaac lies about his wife, Jacob lies numerous times, and then his sons lie, creating a family secret that goes unknown for 20 years. We also see favoritism. Abraham favors Isaac over Ishmael. Jacob is favored over Esau. Jacob favors Joseph over all all the sons, causing sibling rivalry that is just toxic. And what do we learn? Remember the old song, Father Abraham had many sons, and they were all really messed up. So the first of three points we see, blessings and sins of our families have have impact lasting for generations. This impact isn't unique to Abraham and his family line. The pattern of generational sin continues on throughout humanity. This pattern may remind you of what God said to Moses on Mount Sinai in Exodus 34, this, this profound, often misunderstood passage. It says, Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with Moses and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness and rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and the fourth generation. Now, we love that first part, right? God is compassionate, slow to anger. But then what's this part about God going ballistic and punishing all the children and their children because of the sins of their father? Truth be told, the word that's translated punish there is not an easy word to translate from Hebrew to English. That's why other translations translate the word visit or visited instead. Because it means the sins of the father tend to be visited upon or repeated by the following generations. And that visitation of those sins brings pain and brings punishment. The truth is a parent's sin has painful consequences for their children and their grandchildren and their great-grandchildren. Let's take divorce. Now, I know there are legitimate reasons for divorce. I'm not here to put a guilt trip on anyone. However, the fallout from divorce is usually the worst for the kids. The fallout has immediate ramifications, sleeping in two different houses, trying to figure out how to navigate two parents or sometimes more if there's remarriage and, and, and feeling like you're forced to try to take sides and all the messiness of that. And In addition, there are more long-term ramifications as well, such as confusion, insecurity, fear of commitment, and the list could go on. Some kids do okay with divorce. Many others clearly do not. The point is, when parents sin... Children experience consequences. 
This is the parents' sin visiting or punishing the children and their children's children. However, in the same scripture, God is giving us this powerful image similar to the scales of justice. On the justice side, the scripture says we have three or four weights. And on the mercy side, you have thousands of weights. This is a poetic scripture that we're reading. God's main heart towards you is mercy. God wants to help break you free from this weight of sin. The sin that has been done by you, the sin that is done to you, and the sin that you see being done around you. See, God is saying in the scripture, his mercy is so much greater, a thousand to four ratio. Even if your past has shaped your present, it does not have to determine your future. Because of this truth, it leads us to our second point. Becoming a Christian is to be birthed into a new family. See, there are many phrases to describe the church in the Bible, the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, but the dominant phrase is church is family. God is now our father, and we are all together as his followers, his kids. Our legal debts have been canceled, erased by Jesus, and we stand before God as fully, securely adopted sons and daughters. So first and foremost, as a follower of Jesus, I am a Christian. I am a follower of Christ. That comes before my earthly family or my culture or my ethnicity. Our loyalty is to Jesus first and his people. His people are my family. The good news is God gives us the power to break free from sin. That's the good news of the gospel. We're birthed into a new family, a new father with new freedom. Our past doesn't need to determine our future. And yet the challenge is we need to learn how to live in God's family, which leads us to our third point. Discipleship, spiritual transformation in our lives, includes a process of putting off the old sinful patterns of our families. We are created as new creations in Christ. We are forgiven. We are no longer slaves. We've come into a new family. That is our status. However, now we need to learn to live in this new family of Jesus. And that's the hard work that these spiritual practices and spiritual transformation is all about. So how do we do this? Well, at least in today's context of what we're talking about generational sin, you can do it by beginning to identify the generational sins in your family's life. How did your family do conflict in a healthy or an unhealthy way? How did, was affection given? Was it healthy? Was it unhealthy? What did success look like? How was loss dealt with? How was sexuality viewed in your family? See, the basic idea is we can't change what we're not aware of or that which we're numb to or that which we are indifferent to. That's why so many people use uh, in this process a tool called the genogram. It's a tool for discipleship that helps us get at the stuff beneath the surface a little bit faster, a little bit easier, a little bit more clearly to help us more quickly name the areas that we need God to bring change in our lives in. 
there are positive legacies, aren't there? Such as maybe your family is a, was great at managing money or maybe they're humorous, humorous, playful, resilient. Maybe they love the outdoors and music and that was really healthy for you or they're committed to relationships. Or maybe in your family there were also negative legacies like workaholism or conflict or avoidance or addiction or anger or the inability to have committed, committed relationships. See, our goal in this process isn't to dig up dirt. We're trying to identify both the healthy and the unhealthy patterns. It's trying to do what we said before. Jesus may be in your heart, but grandpa's in your bones. So spiritual transformation is about getting the negative parts of grandpa and grandma out of our bones and learning to live in this new family of Jesus and the way Jesus designed us to live. So the goal of the genogram is not just to see the dysfunction of our families. The goal is to learn how to love well. And the point of the practice is is not to blame or be a victim. So as you do a genogram or if you look back at your past, if you find yourself becoming more bitter, then I want you to pause. Because if we're looking back at it in the way God wants us to, it will create more compassion for those in your family and for yourself because you will see more clearly how they became the way they are and how you became the way you are. And you may see how some of the tendencies in your life would have been really hard not to fall into. I mean, these unhealthy patterns may not have been exclusively your parents' fault or your fault because some of you have been dealt a difficult hand. However, It is your responsibility going forward to seek and follow God and find the freedom that he wants to bring, to engage with him to bring the change and freedom in your life. There's a picture on the screen of a genogram of Abraham's life. We've already kind of described it, and that's just one kind of picture of it. When today's message gets edited and posted, we're going to have a handout again on how to do a genogram with a key and some symbols and questions that you can ask to help you get to the core of what's going on in your family, both positive and, and some of the things that you need to look at to change. So you begin by sketching out the basic information about people, births, deaths, marriages, divorce, affairs, miscarriages, mental health. There are lots of symbols. A circle refers to females. Males are squares, so I guess that means we're just all blockheads, guys. I don't know what it but, but You have each generation in one line with the children from that marriage, eldest at the right, all the way to the youngest at the left. Now you're going to see my genogram in a little while, and I didn't remember to do the right and the left, so it's all confused and who's the oldest, but it's there. Other symbols are used to describe relationships, like one line indicates a close relationship, two lines is very close, three lines would be something we would call enmeshed, which is not a really healthy closeness. That's where there's pressure for people in the family to think and feel alike. You have to believe the same way and do the same thing. For example, some families are enmeshed to such an extent that family members go into careers they don't want to because of family pressure. Enmeshment can lead to individuals being pressured to put on a false persona, a false self, leading them to not have a strong sense of another big word, differentiation. Differentiation simply means this. It means if I'm differentiated, I can remain connected to people and I don't have to think and act like I think they want me to in order to be connected. I can be true to myself inside and be okay and healthy in those relationships at the same time. 
with kids, we'll see them try to be the athlete the parents want them to be or the smart kid the parents want them to be instead of who they really are and who they're really gifted to be. Which leads to us when we're adults, if we've been raised up and we're enmeshed as adults, we're always as adults trying to figure out what others want us to be instead of being the unique person God has created us to be. So part of doing a genogram is for you to see more clearly how to shed the layers of expectation that have kept you from being who you were really created to be in all the beauty that God created you to be. Another relational symbol that you'll see in in these things is a jagged line to show conflict and fighting. Emotional distance is often identified with a dotted line saying you're not close that that close emotionally. You're kind of emotionally distanced. In other words, you might do holidays together, but you don't really share a lot together. You just just kind of keep your distance. You're just kind of polite. Another symbol is cut off. Uh, This is when somebody just stops talking to someone else in the family. Conflict's not dealt with. It's just they just stop talking maybe one, two years, or maybe 30 years. Well, not shown here in this legend, there are symbols for abuse, whether it's sexual, emotional, or physical. See, it's rare to see abuse only in one generation because that is usually passed down unless it's dealt with. It's going to be passed down. And then another step you can take in a genogram is to identify the earthquake kind of events, the big things that happened in your family, divorce, death, uh, really painful things, major moves. We're looking at themes and patterns in our lives. I did my first genogram when Wendy and I were both in grad school. I remember being shocked that there were some similarities from my family line and what I saw that I was doing that I never thought I'd do, that I didn't want to do. It was actually disappointing. I thought that my relationship with God and the growth I'd tried to do would keep me from falling into some of the same patterns. Maybe I wasn't at the same level, I don't know, but I was still falling into the same negative patterns. So here's on your screen an edited version of my genogram, out of, a very edited out of respect for my family who may not want all personal stuff shared online in a public setting. Each time I do this, I see new things. The reality is you never really finish doing your genogram. The whole idea of being healthier emotionally and spiritually requires us to go back in order to go forward. Because as you move forward in life, when you get stuck, it's often because you're hitting one of these new development stage things or one of these things that you just, you were raised that way. That's all you've ever thought. You never even questioned something, it's in it, but it's tripping you up. It's making you get stuck in a relationship. And you have to go back in order to understand what that is that's making you stuck so that you can even go buy it. And so you've got, and right now, Wendy and I are in a, a new developmental phase of our life, a new developmental season. Our kids are launching, and we're trying to figure out how, how do you let go in, in a healthy way and, and yet still stay connected to them. And so we, we go back to our genogram, and we see how that was done, and we see healthy ways, and we see really unhealthy ways it was done. And, and we start asking questions. Is this the best way? to stay connected to our kids at this season of our life. In general, here are some of the themes and patterns in my family. I've inherited extremely positive traits from my family, hardworking, tenacious. Faith is just a foundational aspect of life and encouragement. We were always encouraged to be whatever God wanted us to be and go wherever God wanted us to go. didn't matter where. But hard work can lead to self-sufficiency. That can lead to being more emotionally distanced. It can feel normal to disengage. 
In fact, when you look at all the, the, the dotted lines on mine, all the disengage and, and the disengaged relationships in my family tree, it's kind of hard to grow up in my family and not live disengaged and kind of emotionally distant. My family's focus on hard work sometimes led to not talking about sad things or disappointments because there was stuff that needed to be done. This affects how I follow Jesus, just like your family tree affects how you follow Jesus. See, I can struggle at times in my connection to God because it becomes about work. It becomes about producing, which can easily get in the way of experiencing God's love for me. See, I can more easily relate to the idea of God's faithfulness to provide. You just work and he provides and you get results. Then I can relate to feeling like a beloved son of God. I could also fall into thinking others have it worse, and clearly many people do have it, other, have it worse. But when I get that message going, there's a negative aspect of that that goes on in me that says, so don't ask for help, don't be needy, because needy is vulnerable. But the reality is, it's only in vulnerability and being vulnerable with God is the only way I get to experience the uniqueness of his very specific love for me. The genogram helped me identify some of these things that I need to overcome, I need to work on, I need to keep watching, I need to keep processing. And it can do the same for you. Worship team, come on back up. I'd encourage you to take some time to do a genogram, to become more aware of how your family has shaped you. Jesus came to set you free, and most of the time, that setting free is a process over our lifetime. Even without doing a genogram, I'm sure as we've been talking today, some of you may have just had something pop in your mind of more awareness or maybe just a reminder of some of the things in your family tree that have affected you negatively. I want you to take a moment with this question. What is one insight you sense from the Holy Spirit this morning that, that he highlighted for you today that is an area you need to look at? And how do you think that area of dysfunction or whatever it was that you noticed in your family tree, how is that impacting the way you live and specifically how you follow Jesus and experience Jesus? Remember, you don't have to go on this journey alone. Healthy friends in a healthy church should help take you places that you don't want to go by yourself, that it's hard to go by yourself. So maybe talk with one of your friends, maybe share your genogram or may, with, with a friend, or, or maybe do it with your small group and share it with your small group, or, or make an appointment with one of the Thrive counselors to, to talk it through with them. Or uh, we've even, we haven't, because we weren't sure we wanted to do this until this week, we haven't got this organized, but we're talking about the possibility of even putting a group together that would help walk you through doing your genograms and kind of coach you through that process. So next week is our final week in this series of Deeply Formed, and we'll be following up on this message with the more specifics on how you flip the scripts, how you change what you've always assumed and all the messages you've got that are not good for you from your family tree, how you flip those scripts so that you can live more free. Right now, would you just stand with me and pray as we pray? God, I pray that your spirit would come to each and every one of us because we've all got areas we're stuck. We've all got areas where we recognize 
things in our family that we continue to repeat and we're disappointed that we can't get past that. It's sad to us that we do that. Lord, I pray your spirit would come to each of us and lead us on an accelerated, beautiful path of becoming free, of becoming healthier, of becoming whole. Lord, that you would give each and every one of us the joy and the privilege of knowing we broke some of these generational things and our kids can now walk free and their kids can walk free and they can be healthier, better, happier, more whole followers of Jesus than we are. Before service this morning, as we were praying, I felt God kind of give me this sense or this picture that some of you have really struggled with bitterness over some of the damage your family tree has done to you in your life and how it's affected you and how it's created pain in your own world. And I don't know if you're comfortable doing this, just, just take your hands and open them up somehow if that's you. And I just, I just pray with me, just say, God, I ask that you would take the bitterness. And Holy Spirit, would you come and replace that bitterness with a sadness and a compassion. And out of that compassion, Lord, would you come and lead me to love better, to be free, to walk into all that you have. And Lord, to even help looking back at my family who's still alive, who's, who caused some of that, who was a part of some of that, Lord, would you help me help them to be free by giving me a sad compassion. Lord, would you come and remove the bitterness and replace it with your love and your freedom. So Holy Spirit, we just ask that you do that right now. That you'd rest upon everybody who's prayed that prayer here, listening online. Come and do your work, Holy Spirit. We hope you encountered the love of Jesus in this message. If you'd like to be a part of the ministry God is doing through Quest, whether in person or online, go to questvineyard.org for more information. If you want to worship God by supporting Quest financially, go to questvineyard.org give. May God bless you this week as you partner with God to change the world one friendship at a time.